Hello and welcome to today's episode. I will be speaking to Associate Professor Andrew Chang on oral appliances for obstructive sleep apnea. Associate Professor Chang, tell us about yourself. Thank you, David. So um, I'm a, a respiratory and sleep physician and I work in the uh, Department of Respiratory and Sleep Medicine at Royal North Shore Hospital. And I'm also a clinical associate professor at the uh, Sydney Medical School at the University of Sydney. This is the clinical takeaway from HealthEd, interviewing leading medical experts on important topics that can positively impact the way you practice. Here's your host and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Uh, today, we're going to look at patients with um, obstructive sleep apnea, and it has been deemed that this patient really requires some assistance, and a CPAP device may have been, if you like, recommended, and the patient, for whatever reason, cannot use the CPAP machine. What is on offer? Yeah, so um, thank you, David. I think it's really important that patients with obstructive sleep apnea are managed within a multidisciplinary setting. And this um, is um, constitutes a sleep physician. The general practitioner, I think, is hugely important. Um, and there may be other specialties as well which are able to sort of provide input. Sometimes um, ear, nose and throat surger surgeons can um, provide um, valuable uh, insight, and um, I guess today's topic, which is about uh, mandibular advancement splints, I guess segues into uh, the role of uh, uh, dentists as well. So I think that um, in a patient who is struggling with CPAP, it would be very important to find out and try and clarify what specifically uh, the patient is struggling with, because CPAP is a very um, efficacious treatment. Uh, for sleep apnea, but obviously it can be a cumbersome treatment for a lot of people. Um, but there are sort of, I guess, uh, troubleshooting uh, steps that can be taken to try to overcome uh, the patient's sort of intolerance of CPAP. Mm -hmm. So that would be my first approach. Oral appliances, and in particular mandibular advancement splints, however, an alternative treatment um, to CPAP uh, for the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. And if it uh, turns out um, that the patient is not able to um, tolerate CPAP treatment, uh, despite um, measures taken to optimise its use, or, or the patient has a preference to consider alternative treatments, then uh, mandibular advancement splints may be something that is um, considered uh, in those patients. Now, if a patient in the, indeed says to a GP, look, I just don't want to use the CPAP or I have tried and I just can't use it. Um, I've heard about this splint thing. How do we move these forward? Because there's a lot of players in this space, Andrew, and, and we need to be able to send our patients to people we can trust. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think that the likelihood of success of a particular treatment pathway in sleep apnea and in particular, um, the likelihood of long-term success is highly dependent on uh, the um, people that you have involved in the patient's care. So I think it's important that when uh, general practitioners refer patients uh, to a service for the treatment of their sleep apnea with the mandibular advancement splint, that, they that they're really not referring just to a particular person, they're actually referring to a team. So it's the team of the sleep physician 
as well as the, um, the dentist, that really sort of are the ingredients for a positive result. I don't think that um, any one of those sort of clinicians can, can uh, operate in isolation. You certainly need the expertise of the sleep physician, definitely need the experience and expertise of the dentist. And the general practitioner, of course, plays a hugely important role as well. What I'm hearing you saying, Andrew, is don't just send the patient to any old dentist out there who might advertise that they treat sleep apnea with splints, but please send them to a dedicated team. That's correct, yes. And I think that um, probably the first step, I think, in the, I guess, the overall uh, management pathway is, of course, um, the clinical assessment and, um, and of course, making the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. And I think that's best done under the supervision of, of a multidisciplinary team, including the, uh, the sleep physician. Let's just say I then refer the patient on, say, to your clinic or a particular clinic that has a multidisciplinary team. What sorts of things are being assessed for that patient? What are, if you like, uh, criteria that says yes it's good to go or look I'm sorry um, you, we just can't fit you with a splint so what are the pros and cons and who can use it and who can't? I think that there are a range of factors that need to be considered um, in deciding whether a uh, an oral appliance is going to be suitable. First of all it's important to state that while oral appliances can be efficacious for obstructive sleep apnea in a large number of patients, they aren't going to be efficacious in everybody. The overall success rate of either a complete response or a partial response uh, to a mandibular advancement splint is um, typically in the order of about two thirds, which implies that there's about a third of patients who are not gonna be able to derive benefit um, from that treatment. One of the things, um, that is the holy grail of um, our field, is to try to optimally uh, select patients uh, who are going to benefit from uh, this treatment. And a lot of research has been done in this area to try to identify predictors of treatment outcome. And in the research studies, there are a range of uh, demographic, anthropomorphic and anatomical predict predictors of treatment outcome. Mm -hmm. However, it's important to note that the predictive value of nearly all of those parameters, either alone or in combination, aren't um, sufficiently accurate to really rely on in, in itself. And so the, the um, I guess the idea of being able to predict treatment outcome still remains an elusive goal uh, for us. So in reality, the efficacy of the mandibular advancement splint um, is usually assessed by, with a repeat sleep study um, mm -hmm. to confirm the efficacy of the device because it's, because it's not possible to reliably predict which patients are going to be suitable. However, there are, um, I guess, some factors that may, I guess, indicate to you that an oral appliance may not be so suitable. I guess some of those factors may include patients who have a need for very urgent treatment for example, um, they might be a commercial driver and they've got um, excessive daytime sleepiness because of the requirement to have a dental device constructed and uh, adjusted and then uh, and the potential uncertainty around uh, efficacy, it may not be such a suitable option uh, for those people. The other types of patients that it may not be suitable for would be uh, patients who have insufficient teeth 
mm-hmm. uh, to retain the device or alternatively those with insufficient dental health to retain the device or those with sort of pre-existing uh, temporomandibular joint problems, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which might be exacerbated by mandibular advancement splint. So those are some of the considerations, although um, that list is not exhaustive. How long does it really take, uh, Andrew, you know, for the splint to be um, made and then fit it and then retest it for another sleep study? Yeah, so um, I think that the dental appliance um, turnaround time, I guess it will depend on the the individual manufacturer, but usually is in the order of about a week or so. Okay. And this occurs um, after um, the dentist uh, conducts an assessment of the patient's dentition and takes um, dental impressions, either in a traditional manner or there are sort of uh, newer approaches using dental scanners. And then following the issue of the device, um, the patient is uh, fitted with it. And then there is a period of acclimatization. Mm-hmm. Um, and this can range in the order of about you know six to six to eight weeks. Wow. And during that period of time, the patient's degree of mandibular advancement is incremented uh, to the usually to the maximum comfortable limit of mandibular advancement, and then at that point, uh, once that's been achieved and the patients, uh, I guess, acclimatized and used to using the device, they um, <coughs> will take the repeat sleep study to confirm its eff- efficacy. So you're looking a few months. Yeah, so it's it's going to take probably in the order of about probably eight to twelve weeks. Yes. Yeah, so. Wow. So you're right. If my commercial truck driver really needs it. Um, that they, it is just too long mm. to wait. Mm. Yeah, I guess just talking about the commercial truck driver, the other thing that may be relevant for the commercial truck driver is, is that we often use objective measures of compliance with treatment and mm-hmm. CPAP machines generally able to do that by uh, recording the number of hours of usage. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, mandibular advancement splints haven't had that capacity, but I I will mention that um, there are some advances in this area and there have been uh, some devices which have been fitted uh, with inbuilt adherence recorders. So that might be something that, I guess, uh, changes things in that space in the future. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Just a quick question. Um, What about the use of, say, remote sensors together with the mandibular splints to assess its efficacy at home? Mm, that's That's a really good question, David. And I think it's something that we're probably likely to see more of uh, in the future. As you know, there's an explosion of sort of wearable devices and apps um, uh, in, in, in the sleep space. And I think that, you know, we're likely to see sort of um, technology uh, emerge in this area, which will, which will uh, provide some ability to do that. But I think at the moment, these are not uh, sort of very widespread. Andrew, let's just say, for example, this patient is indeed fitted with the splint and actually seems to do well enough on repeat sleep study. What do we do next as GPs? How often do we need to monitor them? Are there particular complications in the future we need to be aware of? For example, a change in bite or future TMJ issues? And how often do splints need to be replaced? Yes, so I guess mandibular advancement splints have a range of, I guess, short-term as well as Mm long-term side effects. Mm -hmm. Some of the short-term side effects include hypersalivation, dental pain, mouth dryness. So the short-term side effects are usually transient. They're usually self-limiting 
and sort of minor in nature, but you know they can be um, an issue for patients, especially during the climatization period. The other important thing, of course, is the um, the long term side effects of uh, mandibular advancement splint treatment. And the important thing to note is this, that the continued ongoing use of the mandibular advancement splint can result in dental changes, um, including um, movement of teeth and also occlusive changes. And for this reason, it's it's very, very important uh, that the uh, patient is monitored on a regular basis by their dentist to assess for these um, side effects. Sometimes the occlusal changes which occur can be favourable. However, sometimes um, they are unfavourable and um, may actually result in the patient needing to stop treatment um, if if, uh, if the dentist considers um, that that needs to be needs to be done. Are you referring to say uh, TMJ issues? What would a GP look for to say, look, I think we're having problems? Yeah, I think the patient the patient will usually be able to indicate that there has been a change in their bite mm-hmm. or a change in their occlusion. Sometimes, though, a patient may not be aware of those changes. And so I think that um, if a patient is on mandibular advancement splint treatment, they should see their dentist when they're stable, probably, you know, I think a 12-monthly review by their dental uh, practitioner would be appropriate. If indeed, say, the dentist says, look, there has been some minor unfavorable movement of your bite do they have a um advancement splint holiday say you know um six months on two months off or something like that look i think i think it depends very much on the individual situation i guess if there are minor bite changes Mm. um one approach may be to i guess continue using the device but under sort of close observation right but in in other cases it may be necessary to uh, seek alternative therapies I guess in terms of mandibular advancement splint holidays, it probably poses a, a problem because there are then going to be periods where the patient isn't uh, treated. And so, you know, it may be, uh, I guess, uh, more practical to, you know, to seek alternative therapy in that, in that situation. In your experience, Andrew, how many patients or percentage of patients roughly would have significant long-term uh, occlusion changes? I think we know that the likelihood of having uh, occlusive changes is going to is is proportional to um, the duration of use. Okay. So um, the longer patients uh, use a mandibular advancement splint for, the more likely and the you know the greater the degree of uh, occlusal change that there is going to be. I think that um, the things that need to be considered here are, I guess, the rate of change, so um, and the degree of change as well as the, uh, I guess, the nature of the change. And as I mentioned before, sometimes the uh, the, cha- the dental occlusive changes which occur can be favourable. And so in that case, it may not, you know, it may not be something that, that uh, precludes you continued use of the oral appliance. So in your experience, again, Andrew, how many patients using the mandibular advancement splint needs to stop using it because of these sorts of long-term issues? Yeah, look, I think that the proportion of patients who need to stop using it is relatively small. I think, though, that um, there are a number of uh, long-term studies looking at long-term side effects of these therapies going out to, you know, as long as um, 11 years uh, or so. Yeah, I'm not able to sort of cite an actual 
sort of percentage, but yeah, it's relatively small. It's relatively Okay. Well, that's actually not too bad. I was thinking, look, if one third won't derive a benefit and if a large number eventually drop out, it may not be such an effective form of treatment. But what you're saying is for those who can derive benefit, they can probably stay on it for quite a while as long as they are monitored every 12 months by the dentists. That's correct. Yes. And I think the other thing is, is that um, they also need periodic monitoring for by the sleep physician to ensure ongoing efficacy as well. That periodic review will usually sort of constitute an assessment of, you know, compliance and assessment of the patient's uh, sleep apnea symptoms. There isn't usually a need for routine repeat sleep studies, but there might be situations where a repeat sleep study is undertaken. For example, if the patient has a recurrence of their sleep apnea symptoms or if they have weight gain, for example, that might warrant reassessment. That makes a lot of sense, Andrew. So I'm just wondering, because these patients require at the outset two sleep studies, one for diagnosis and one to test efficacy, and then they have to pay for the splints and the fitting of the splints, what are the cost implications? Yeah, so I think this is going to vary from one jurisdiction to another. I think in a lot of places, um, there isn't a rebate for mandibular advancement splints. Mm -hmm. And there isn't a a way of, you know, accessing a government subsidy for it. Mm -hmm. I guess the cost of a mandibular advancement splint is approximately the same as a CPAP machine. I think the main difference is, is that it is possible to access subsidy for CPAP machines, whereas, you know, accessing a subsidy for an oral appliance can be more challenging. Okay. And of course, needing two sleep studies and with the shortage of beds for sleep studies, that is also a problem. Look, I think that the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea requires an objective um, assessment of the patient's sleep apnea, both at diagnosis and also to assess the efficacy. I guess there are options both with in-laboratory sleep studies as well as home sleep studies Um, And so there are different ways that um, that can be achieved. Well, thank you, Andrew. That's been quite informative to me. Uh, And for me, I I know very little about this. So if if I could ask you to summarise the key points for our listeners. I think the key points are that mandibular advancement splints are a viable alternative treatment option to CPAP for the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. Approximately one third of patients uh, will achieve a complete response to mandibular advancement splint treatment, and a further one-third will be able to achieve a partial response. Mm-hmm. Of course, that means that there is a group of patients in the order of about a third as well uh, that do not uh, derive benefit from mandibular advancement splint treatment. However, even though CPAP is much more efficacious compared to mandibular advancement splints um, in terms of lowering the apnea hypopnea index in obstructive sleep apnea, there are uh, indications that patients prefer using um, an oral appliance compared to CPAP, and this may lead to equivalent sort of long-term treatment outcomes, um, including neurobehavioral and cardiovascular treatment outcomes when that high degree of compliance is taken into consideration as well. Um, In terms of the use of mandibular advancement splints, Uh, For the treatment of structural sleep apnea, these are generally well tolerated. Short-term side effects include hypersalivation um, or dental pain, Uh, but there are long-term side effects, including uh, tooth movements and uh, occlusive changes, um, 
which need to be carefully monitored um, by a, a dentist as part of a multidisciplinary team. Andrew, that is just a very, very good summary of this device. Uh, I think that we would just add that um, there are cost implications if a patient chooses to go down this route. Yes, the mandibular advancement splint costs include the costs of seeing the dentist, accessing uh, a government subsidy uh, for mandibular advancement splint treatment can vary depending on the jurisdiction. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Okay, thanks very Enjoy much. Have your day. And thank okay, you. you too. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.